0: Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and today we have Sophie. Hi, everybody. And Josh. Hello. And today we're joined with our special guest, Mike Binns. Hi.
1: Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good
0: one. Max out. So Mike, uh, we invited you to come on at uh, ElixirConf 2019. You presented a a talk with cars.com and I was really impressed by it and I really wanted to, have a chance to talk more in depth with some of those things that you guys covered. So uh, we'll have a link to that talk in the show notes. I encourage people to check that out. But why don't you first give us a little background about where you work and what kind of uh, problems you're solving?
2: Sure. So I'm a software engineer with Dockyard. Uh, We're a digital product product agency. We uh, work with companies to help them on uh, Elixir, uh, either directly working on their code or Leveling up their, uh, as we're doing in cars, we level up their, their engineers to uh, be able to write the right elixir themselves. Uh, I've been with Dockyard for about a year, uh, little over a year now, and uh, I've been doing elixir for about five years. Nice.
0: So I know one of the things that you guys talked about at your in your presentation was these strategies and techniques that you guys were employing to help bring a large a large scale team who's almost entirely new to Elixir up to speed. Uh, so maybe you could just give us a, a brief kind of recap of uh, what this their situation was, like what the, the company was cars.com. So maybe you just, I, I think as I understand it, maybe you can correct me. Uh, they had already decided that they wanted to use Elixir and then they were, they were realizing that they needed to scale up everybody at the same time. Or maybe you could kind of explain what their motivation was to to bring in Dockyard?
2: Sure. Yeah. So uh, as you mentioned, uh, cars.com decided they wanted to go with Elixir, uh, but they didn't have uh, a couple of people that had played around with it for a few months, but no uh, actual Elixir experience. And so they brought on uh, Dockyard to train their, their engineers. Uh, When we started, they had, Uh, About ten or eleven engineers that were going to be moved off of their their existing product and to build uh, and onto a new team to build this new, uh, basically rebuild from the ground up of their their website in Elixir, and so uh, our what Dockyard was asked to do was both help build that product with them, but uh, at least primarily initially was to level up their engineers that had, some of them had literally never seen Elixir. Uh, We wanted to get all all those engineers up to speed. Uh, Like I said, at that time it was about uh, 10 or or 12 engineers that we uh, initially trained and then uh, over the past uh, year they've grown and they have about uh, 30 full-time employees on Elixir. Uh, uh, I believe only about eight of those had prior Elixir experience. Some of the newer hires were had more experience than the, the group that started.
0: So one of the challenges that I personally have experienced uh, was the idea that I was the advocate in my company at the time for you know moving from a, a Rails-focused application. I'd seen and been playing with Elixir for some time, like these guys you were describing. And one of the problems that I had was you know we'd hire new people and we say, "Hey, we're just letting you know we're going in this new direction. We're going with Elixir. Are you okay with that? You know because maybe we can talk about that too, because one of the things you mentioned is how some people can identify with the type of developer they are with their tool set, like I am a Python developer or I am a Ruby developer, and they have a lot of resistance to uh, a different technology. Uh, but so we we invited these people, or you know in hiring these people, we said, "Hey, this is where we're going." But then the problem was is I had a lot of experience in the legacy system and they didn't. So they were working mostly with Elixir and I was needing to help support the legacy system. So when, when they were doing that at cars and you had this, it sounded like you were creating an entire new team. Is that how they did that? Or were there any strategies or techniques you could tip?
2: Yeah. So uh, car's decision was that they would, uh, instead of trying to have the team work on both uh, the, the legacy system and the, the new system. At, at the same time, they would split off uh, and have a dedicated team. So the the entire that entire team uh, of uh, 12, uh, ten or twelve to start and and thirty plus now is completely dedicated to the new system. The, other than other than needing to you know ask questions about the old system, they're not involved in the old system uh, at all. So it's it's a, a dedicated team. So that was obviously a, a huge. Decision to make, and I uh, yeah, not not everyone can do that, but uh, they were able to, and they they so that's the path that they chose.
3: That sounds like a very nice luxury. Definitely. Yeah.
4: yeah, I mean, I think it it can be so hard to not just hire people into a new team that's growing and kind of adopting a new language and new frameworks, but certainly to transition. People who haven't historically worked with Elixir or whatever the case may be, onto kind of the new team or the new state of the world and um that's actually something that my team uh, at Flatiron is going through right now. We've been doing some reorganization, and some folks have joined uh, my squad, which is doing a lot of elixir and on the one hand, it's like people are like so excited they really wanted to join this domain because they really wanted to get their hands on elixir, but on the other hand, they're really scared and they have a lot of questions, which is great but Sometimes those questions come from this place of fear, uh, and that can kind of have, I think, sometimes a negative impact on, I don't know, vibe is not a scientific word, the vibe of the team. So I'm curious how you guys felt, uh, dealt with the concerns or honestly the fears of people moving into the new Elixir team who are already at CARS, uh, and yeah, just how you created like an environment that, that really helped deal with that.
2: Yeah. So I think, uh, what helped for me is, uh, so I started Elixir I said a little over five years ago, but before that I was, uh, writing Java. And so for me, it was a, it was a, a big jump. You know, A lot of people go through the, the Ruby, you know, start go to, from Ruby to Elixir. And when I was learning, the, the guys that were teaching me were like, Oh yeah, you know, it's, it's like this in Ruby. And I'm like, yeah, sorry. You know, I, that doesn't help me at all. I had no idea what that is. Either. But, uh so I think that helped me to empathize with the 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 folks that were uh some of them also were coming from uh java and and uh realize that you know it, it is starting out uh new but uh you know to me the thelux language is so exciting and fun and it's nice to have something something new like that to to dive into and really uh learn and and enjoy and so you know, it doesn't take long in Elixir, as we as we've seen with the cars project, to have, you know, people that have never seen it before up and, and writing production code uh, really well. So, it's uh, I think the, the learning curve makes it it uh, and the community that's out there to to help you out and makes it uh, much easier lift than maybe going to a different language.
4: Yeah, and I'd imagine some of the techniques. Um that I know you've spoken about in the past and in your Elixir talk, like mob programming probably help a little bit with that because I've definitely been on new teams that have spun up and have done like mob mobbing or we'll call it fish bowling sometimes. And I feel like not only does that set a lot of, set out a lot of common standards and help people ask a lot of questions, but it also just kind of puts people on the same page and helps them kind of spend time together and have fun together and solve problems together, which is so essential when you're like a norming a new team. And then I've also been on squads where, you know, you kick off a new project or you assemble a new squad and you don't do uh, certain practices like that. And it's just, you really feel, you really feel the difference I think.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think, I think having your, your whole team on the same page about uh, even some of the smaller things, it just makes, makes things flow, flow better. And, and like I said, the, the mob coding uh, we had probably uh, 15 or 20 of us all together uh, writing code, it, it, you know, the, there's the, the standards and there's a couple of different ways of doing different things, but you can talk about the different ways. Um, and so the, they'll, they'll, the people watching and, and learning will understand the different ways of doing things, but then you can maybe say, Hey, you know, this is what I prefer and, and maybe we can move the, the move towards this standard. And so, uh, it, it's, it's really great. And the, the mob, mob programming, you know. Uh, some people are much uh, more likely to ask questions and the people that aren't as likely to ask questions are going to hear the answers because someone else is going to ask that. So the, the big group kind of really helps out. Um, and then, yeah. And then, uh, just seeing the code and seeing, being able to, uh, for me, I was, I was typing and I was able to basically tell them what I was thinking as I was typing. Um, And then uh, some of the other doctorate engineers that were on the project would would jump in and have, you know, additional uh, pieces of information on it. And it was uh, it was it was good. It was it was uh, definitely recommended if that's something that you can do.
4: Yeah, I feel like it really helps build up trust, too, because people are all collaborating on some of those standardization conversations instead of feeling like, you know, oh, I was left out of a certain decision and I don't like that I didn't have control or, oh, I was left out of a certain decision and I totally don't get it and I feel like I missed my chance to ask a question Um, and that can be hard too. But I don't know if you'd want to share a little bit about any of the standard tools or practices that you guys were able to kind of surface during some of those mobbing sessions.
2: Sure, yeah. And so uh, one of them, uh, one of the key ones is, is definitely Credo. Uh, We use that in our our code before you uh, check stuff in. Uh, That's, and I think that's been huge for the team for learning. Um, I have had countless uh, conversations with people uh, working uh, in Elixir, learning Elixir that started with, hey, you know, Credo's complaining about this and I have no, I don't understand why. And so you get to have a simple, have a conversation about, you know, well, so here's how lists work in Elixir, and this is why you know prepending is better than than appending to the end of the list and so here's a way you can do that by you know prepending and then reversing uh, or you know string to atom is one that that uh, comes up a lot with uh, with some of the newer engineers and you'll you get to have that conversation that like no, because you're doing because you're doing it this way, the entire system could be taken down. By a, you know uh, some bad uh, post requests, and so it, it helps bring those conversations up. Uh, so credo is definitely one um, dialyzer. I know there's a lot of people that there's, there's a lot of different opinions on dialyzer. Uh, I, just, I think it, it helps uh, catch some stuff that uh, might not, not be obvious. Uh, it might be me coming from a Java background, and: and uh, you know, I love dialyzer. Excited, a whole lot. Yeah, yeah, it's it's helpful. It's and, and there's there's levels of how much you can use it based on how much you know how much you're using specs and all that. But uh, I think it's it's good to have have that. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's those are the, those are the two two primary ones that we we use.
0: So I'm curious, uh, is there a particular editor that you would suggest to a new developer? Like because I know like VS Code can give dialyzer feedback in the source code. So is that something that you'd suggest for people?
2: Yeah, definitely. I always, even, even I'll, I'll always suggest, uh, VS code, uh, because for that reason, there's, there's so many, the uh, Elixir LS, uh, the language server, uh, integration there that like you mentioned does, uh, does a dialyzer stuff. Um, that's, that's huge. And that, that helps, uh, helps you catch stuff as you're writing instead of having to go back later on and figure out what, what you're thinking. and uh, Yeah, so VS Code, definitely. Um, uh, there's obviously people who are, uh, really enjoy their own editor, but uh, I'd urge anyone to at least give it a shot if you're learning Elixir. Uh, try it out. Put the Elixir LS uh, extension on there and, and uh, try it out.
3: Yeah, I'm a pretty hardcore Vim zealot and I'll use VS Code or VS Codium about as much as I use a uh, Vim for elixir code myself. It's also you mentioned the uh the live share feature and that that strikes me as particularly useful in the in the mobbing situation. It's obviously way better than trying to share control in something like Zoom directly.
2: Right. Yeah, definitely. And that that was huge. Um we we use that probably more in the in the early stages. Um uh our, the team isn't really using live Share that much now. Um as uh but when when we were mobbing, what it would allow is like I mentioned, I was I was writing code and, and moving along in the in the uh in the feature that I was demonstrating and it would allow others to be able to basically maybe jump back or, or follow follow down and, and dig into the code and maybe follow up on a question they might have had. Uh across the entire code base as opposed to only being able to see the code that's on on my screen. So that was uh, that was that was definitely helpful in mob coding.
1: One of my favorite communities in programming these days is the angular community. Every time I go to an angular conference or meet up with some of my friends who are in the angular community, I have a great time and a lot of them have wound up on adventures in angular. So if you're doing front-end development, you're looking for a way to keep current on the angular ecosystem And you want to have a good time listening to fun people talk about great topics related to Angular, then go check out Adventures in Angular at adventuresinangular.com.
0: So I would like to just uh, take a moment and talk about mob coding in case people aren't familiar with it. You've kind of given a little bit of a picture there. Sounds like uh, one person is driving and and sounds like a lot of times you were kind of like the the primary typist. Uh, And then you had like 15 to 20 people watching, asking questions and interacting with you. Uh, are there any other uh, ways that you would structure that? That you would give uh, as advice or tips for people who are new to it? Uh,
2: no, that's basically it. And um, it was interesting. Mob coding—it wasn't something I ever even heard of before this project. And, and I remember who it was it even suggested it? But uh, yeah, it's it's like I said. Uh, we took a uh, the first week of the project. Um, I I programmed. I picked a feature uh, that would. Uh, it was something that they needed. So it would be domain relevant. They they were able to understand it and they were actually even able to give me feedback about, you know, well, it needs to do this and this during the session. And then for, for the first week, we had uh, two two hour sessions a day and we all just jumped on a, a a zoom chat and uh, I shared my screen and live view or uh, sorry, live, live share. And um, yeah and just I just programmed through it and made sure that I was hitting on things you know, starting off with simple stuff like pattern matching and explaining that, um, you know pipelines and with statements and uh, phoenix uh, context generators, that type of stuff, and just work through all the made sure that that the the example that I was working on touched on all of those things that we wanted to bring the team up to speed on.
0: Sophie, you'd mentioned the idea of fish bowling. I'm just wondering if is that about the same kind of thing? Is that just a different name for it, or does that work a little differently?
4: I think it's just a different name for it. Uh, my experience comes from about a year ago at the Flatiron School. We partnered with um, another sort of big ed tech company called 2 You, and it was sort of this like melding of two teams from two different companies. And it was super, super new to us, at least at Flatiron, because we are not you know, a consultancy. We're not a dev shop. We've like really never worked with developers or organizations outside of ourselves before. And one of the things that we did to kind of kick off uh, some of the knowledge sharing and norm setting around this kind of new mega team that was forming was uh, something that we called fishbowl. I really think it's just another word for mobbing, except we would sort of take turns. Uh with what we were working on, and that was a really great way just to get people together and kind of loosen people up a little bit because you have these like two groups, each knew each other, but they didn't know, you know, people like across the aisle, so to speak. And it was also a case where on the Flatiron side, a handful of us had uh, various degrees of elixir experience, and then kind of coming together with the two you folks, no one on that end had elixir experience, so it was really similar setup up and just a great way to start sharing some of that elixir knowledge and setting some of those standards together.
0: Cool. So Mike, one of the things you mentioned, uh, was that you were doing this, uh, VS code live share and it sounded like it was remote. So was most of the interaction like with the mobbing, was it remote or, or were you on site or anything like that?
2: Yeah. So, uh, is a fully remote company. So, uh, all the dockyards are, are, uh, are not there. Uh, we, myself and, uh, Chris McCord and Paul Schoenfelder went out to uh, Chicago the first week to kind of kick off the project to meet meet the people, uh, but the the mob coding was was a couple of weeks after that, and uh, their their team was uh, starting down the the remote path also of of uh, becoming a more remote friendly uh, team, and so that was actually something that Dockyard was able to. Help out a little bit with, with that understanding that culture and and making making adjustments uh, for that. But the the mob coding was uh, the those that were remote. Yes, were were uh, remote. But the I believe they had uh, they got a, had a large room and everyone had their laptops in there, so they were they were they were uh, together. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, I believe they they had just started. They hired a, a couple a couple of those new folks were remote uh, on the car side.
4: Do you have any ideas or like tips for how to do mob coding really successfully? And it sounds like you guys were really leading that exercise, so I'm sure you're pros at it.
2: Yeah, well, I've, I've done it once, so um, if that counts as a pro maybe. Um, but yeah, so I would say um, preparation is, is huge. Uh, so I took the, the week before we mob coded and went through and actually did the whole exercise myself. I uh, came up with that with that feature, so that as I was programming in front of them, I wasn't you know, tripping over my own words and trying to figure figure stuff out or, or running into roadblocks. Uh, so that was, I think that that helped, uh, It also let me make sure that I was able to go back and and make sure that I was covering all the points I needed to, and if not, you know, was able to tweak the the work uh, to to cover those. So I think that helped it go smoothly to actually have done 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 all the work prior and i think the so as i mentioned earlier that Docker was kind of helped to help cars out with remote work and kind of understanding the remote culture so uh things like uh, always having your camera on was uh you know if if, if at all possible was uh, something that is uh kind of remote culture that if you're you just happen to be working from home but you're a, a an office company Most usually your camera's not on but if you're a remote company to me that's a being able to see people and and uh how they're reacting to what you're doing is, is huge and for remote culture um other some of the other things when we first started uh if people were working from home they would send out a notification like it was pto uh at, at cars and so that was it was like well if you if you really want to treat working from home, and you know as as though you're working in the office, you don't really need to notify everyone that you're working from home. Uh, sure, you, you know you can maybe put a an icon on your on your Slack so that they they don't come and you know come to your your office and you're not there. But working from home in in remote is really uh, similar. And so if you you want to kind of treat those as not as not being abnormal, so.
4: I'm also wondering if you have any tips for just individuals who are working from home. I'm about to transition to a fully remote team and I'm like a little nervous, if I'm being honest, I've never done it before.
2: Sure. Yeah. So it's funny when I, before I, uh, when I started working uh, in Elixir was the same time I transitioned to working from home. And before that time, I remember thinking, yeah, I can never work from home. It wouldn't, it's not something I'd ever ever be able to do. Um, But my boss at that time uh, worked from home and he he had a couple of tips. Um he said, you know, you, you obviously have to have your own space that that is uh quiet and you're able to to get your stuff done. Um so I have I have uh, four boys uh, aged from four to ten and they're homeschooled. Uh so that uh is you know obviously a potential for disaster if that's not not uh handled handled correctly. And when my boss had mentioned to me, he said, look, uh have Sit down with your family and say, "If I'm in my office, it's as though I'm not there, you know, like I'm out out and uh, as it was when I was away uh, and if you need to t- contact me, send me a text or call me just like you would um and that kind of helps set those boundaries so that you can then uh, you know have have a productive work day um but obviously then you know if I get up and I leave and i I can go and hang out with them and talk whatever. I'm grabbing lunch. That's great. But if I'm in the office and the door's closed, you know, call or text.
0: Some nice tips. I know uh, it it can be difficult, I think, for a company to transition to uh, being an all office uh, company kind of culture to doing remote. Uh, So these are some good tips. But some of the things I think are uh, potentially challenging is as teams are growing and they're saying, hey, we would really like to get some Elixir talent and we may not have anyone that's, actually here geographically and maybe they don't want to move they want we can but we can hire some really good talent that's remote uh so some of the things that i think they could consider and i'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on this but it's just uh you know trying to have that remote first mentality that everything that regards the company or what or the the team should happen in slack or somewhere that's visible to everybody and you know stand up should be always you know with cameras and everyone's maybe not even standing physically around each other. They're all maybe doing it on Slack. So they're all looking at each other in the camera. Uh, I don't know any other kind of tips or thoughts.
2: Yeah, that's uh, definitely uh, like I said, cameras, cameras on. Um, and you know, what, what you mentioned about uh, being able to becoming a remote friendly company, allowing you to reach out and, and pull talent from uh, much farther away than you would if you were uh, held to your office. I think especially with Elixir where that's uh, where there's the, the talent pool is, is uh, smaller, you, you need that flexibility to be able to reach farther and, and get your employees.
3: Yeah, I would, I would just also like to point out if you're a small company and you're wanting to do remote employees, but you are concerned about the regulatory burden, you should look at just using a PEO to pay your employees.
0: What's a PEO?
3: It is a, uh, I don't actually remember what it stands for, but basically you lease your own employees from this organization uh, through which they can get group uh, health insurance, oh. but also they manage payroll. So all of the regulatory burden for paying people in 50 different states is not a thing you have to worry about. Interesting.
0: So Mike, I would love to hear uh, any thoughts and observations you've had now that this, uh, that project and initial you know, transition and and bring up the team is done. If you still have any contact with them, or if you know, if you're familiar with uh, kind of how things have worked out for them, have they been successful? Anything that you would have, uh, you would have learned from this and say, you know, next time I think I would make, I do this differently.
2: Um, Yeah. So I'm actually, I'm still working with cars uh, on, on that project Uh, it's transitioned now more to uh, kind of coaching, mentoring uh, as needed, but, uh, other than that, actually, uh, the dockyarders are, are in there writing code next to the CARS employees. Um, and it's, it seems to be going really well. Uh, as I mentioned, they're at around 30 full-time employees uh, writing Elixir, plus uh, about a dozen uh, contractors uh, alongside them. And, yeah, uh, as far as uh, things that would change, I'm not, not sure. I think it seems to go really well. Um, cars is using the uh shape up uh process from Basecamp, and so that 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 itself took uh, had a little few few bumps learning how to do that and adjusting to that um but i think that's working really well now uh we have we have i think 16 teams this this cycle uh all uh, working on different different aspects of the code and things seems to seem to be uh going really well.
3: So I had a question for you uh, specifically about how long it took you to get from people that were new to the language to people that could deploy, right? So like, how long did it take for the team to deploy something that was at least consuming something like live data?
2: Um, so they were, let's see, we had the, so Basecamp works in cycles. So six week cycles uh, and then two week down, uh, cool down in between. And by the end of the first cycle, uh, the teams were contributing code that was being um, pushed out. It wasn't, it wasn't live production, but it was uh, pushed out. Uh, and yeah, so it was pretty, pretty quickly that they were able to uh, get up to speed and, and write code. And obviously, at, over the, the months following, they were they that improved, and uh, you know, code became more idiomatic and. Uh, cleaner and all that. But right out, right out of the gate, they were writing useful code that's still in the, pro- in the project uh, today. Great.
1: A few years ago at a JavaScript conference, I was approached by Nader Dabit. And you might know him for the React Native radio podcast. He's also a developer evangelist for Amazon. And when he came to me, we had a conversation about React Native. And the thing that I love about React Native is that it's approachable, it's web technology, and it's cross-platform, and it makes a lot of things really easy for developers to jump in and do interesting things on mobile with JavaScript. So we've had this show now running for several years, React Native Radio, where we interview people about the React Native ecosystem, some of the things that are coming out in React and how they affect mobile, and other options that you have for mobile development. So if you're doing mobile development, you're doing it in JavaScript, you're looking for a good option, or maybe you're just trying to stay current with React Native, then go check out React Native Radio at reactnativeradio.com.
0: So Mike, there's another topic that I would love to jump into, which was um, in preparation for this show, uh, for this episode, we had some discussions and you were talking about ETS and a project that you had, uh, in a blog post, you'd kind of written around ETS. And so I thought maybe you could talk and share a little bit about that.
2: Sure. Yeah. So uh, when I was uh, in my first uh, project with Dockyard, uh, we started, uh, using, uh, or, er, er, so I would say prior to, uh, working in Dockyard, I hadn't actually used Ets before. Uh, and a little bit of that was because of the, the, um, stories that I'd heard about how, uh, difficult it is to, to deal with, um, getting things right. You know, once, once, it, once you get it working, it's great and it's awesome, but kind of a pain to learn and to, to, uh, deal with, um, you know, for example, like argument errors. Anything goes wrong, you get an argument error, and you have no, no indication as to what or why uh, it went wrong. And so, um I said, I'd asked around if there was a wrapper for it, and there's there was a couple small ones that didn't, didn't really uh, seem like they ended up going anywhere. Uh, but everyone just said, yeah, no, we just use directly the, you know, in our line. Uh So I figured, well, you know, one good way to learn something is to, you know, dive into something like this. So I decided to write a write a wrapper for it, and uh, basically, it's it's an Elixir wrapper for for Ads, and it simplifies and or, uh, streamlines the like creating tables, and it streamlines uh, making uh, calls into Ads. But it also handles error messages. So if you uh, if you make a call into Ads and it fails it'll get back an argument error, but it'll actually then go, go through and test a couple of the common scenarios. Like, does this table exist? And if it doesn't, then it'll return, you know, an uh, error table not found tuple. Uh, and, you know, if you're trying to uh, insert, yeah. So table not found is, is uh, one of the errors it'll return. It'll do all, all the other different logic things that could, could happen in S where, where it might potentially return, result in an argument error it'll catch uh, all the ones that I've been able to think of. I'm sure there's plenty more out there, but yeah. So, uh, for example, you would, uh, in set, uh, it separates set and bags out uh, into their own modules because the way that they function is actually different underneath, even though you're, uh, you're adding the way you add and retrieve them is kind of unified in, in, in the, uh, underlying X, it breaks it out so that your, uh, you're interacting it with each one of them in, in a way that makes sense to those. Um, and yeah, so that was that was my my way of learning Et's and then uh, contributing back what I'd learned to hopefully help the next uh, next people trying to learn or, or use Et's. Uh, so if if you're if you use Et's or if you if you're thinking of using it, uh, check it out. I'd love any feedback you have on it. Uh,
0: that's cool. I do really like ETS, uh, Erlang Term Storage. Uh, it, I use it for, there's a number of things I think it's a really good use case for, and then sometimes when you're dealing with clustering, uh, people might be misapplying, uh, you know, trying to use it as a, like a Redis replacement, but not realizing that it's only specific to one node, and and then now they have a cluster. So there are some uh, caveats, some things to kind of just be aware of and, and where it is correct to use it. So anything to improve the, uh, accessibility of the library is awesome so i i know whenever i have to do like a match kind of like searching throughout a list and i always have to go look up the the query syntax because it is not like a a, a syntax i've seen anywhere else uh, so that anything like that that
2: helps is awesome so great yeah. unfortunately it's not going to help you with that that syntax that, that i haven't tackled that yet that's uh That's, uh, yeah, that, that one's still scary to me.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) Because you'd have to like come up with a whole new query language and then be able to translate that into another query language. So it's like, I don't know if that's worth it. But
2: No, at this this point, what we do, what I do with the library is, is just proxy the call. And then, you know, if, if you get an argument error, we like said, go through the different
0: ways that that could have failed and, and try to give you a helpful error message. Cool. And I was wondering if you could also give us a little bit of an introduction to your project, Ironman.
2: Yeah. So, uh, Ironman, project Ironman, it was a, the result of the, after the first project I was on with Dockyard, myself and the other engineer decided that we would, uh, go through, uh, do a retrospective on everything we'd learned with that project and what the tools we'd use and the, the, um, techniques we we'd use and, put them into a document and and just get that all down so that when we went to our next project, we were able to have all that ready to go and, and make the next project uh, flow uh, easier. And so after we put that document together, I figured we could probably automate most of the stuff. So came up with the, this project that's uh, called Iron Man because uh, the idea being that, you know, uh, Mix is like Tony Stark and it's awesome, great, whatever. But yeah, you can you can kind of Suit, suit him up when he becomes iron man you suit him up and he's got more protection and he's, he's able to do more and so the idea is you uh iron man is a hex package you can install uh archive that you can install and then on any one of your projects you call suit up and it will go through and uh suggest things like credo and dialyzer and add them for you uh, coveralls Git hooks uh ex docs, earmark, all those type of things. And it also then uh, has some other features like it will check all of your, your dependencies and see what the latest version is. And if there's a newer version, it'll ask you if you want to, you want to update the dependency and it'll go through all of those. And then uh, if you wanted to add a, a dependency, you just type in the name of the dependency, it'll go out, find the latest version and update your mix file with that. Uh, so yeah, so that's, that's Project Iron Man. Still, uh, it, I haven't had... Time recently to work on it. Um, it's, it's functioning. And uh, yeah, so definitely uh, take a look at that. Git commit so you can roll back if anything, you know, if it, if it doesn't do what, what you like. But it's, uh, yeah, it's got, got some interesting features and love feedback on that also.
0: Cool. I appreciate the uh, effort that went into making it and sharing it with everyone. So it's not just like an internal tool of Dockyard, something that like you're part of your secret sauce, like, hey, I'm super productive. Look at me. They're actually sharing it. So thank you was there anything else we want to talk about before we go to picks all right let's go to picks josh do you have something
3: i do i saw a thing in the elixir digest called ziggler uh, which provides inline nif support for zig and that struck me as really cool so zig is a general purpose programming language and ziggler lets you write your zig code that will be your nif uh, sort of inline in uh, essentially a a, a dot comment kind of thing Anyway, so it strikes me as a, a neat thing that I'm going to play with at some point. That's all I got. Cool. Sophie.
4: Yeah. So uh, this, uh, today's topic and talking with you, Mike, really put me in mind of, uh, a blog post that I came across full disclosure because my partner wrote it about uh, venturing into freelance, creative freelance work and the difference between accumulated versus applied knowledge. So I think a lot of people, whether they want to strike out a new freelance business or just kind of change their professional focus in any way really struggle with this tension between, you know, I should take a lot of courses. I need to level up technically with just kind of going out and getting their hands dirty. So I thought that uh, this post in response to a reader question, should I level up my technical skills before starting the freelance business was a really nice and helpful take on that.
0: Cool. All right. I was going to share three, Uh, two of them are kind of all related. So I mentioned these before I'd recently kind of written some blog articles about using Elixir in VS Code, how to set that up, uh, and then a second article saying hey, if you're having problems with one of the uh, extensions I recommend, which is Elixir LS, which we talked about here for giving dialyzer feedback and everything in line, uh, then check out that blog article that kind of explains why uh, things might be going wrong and, and exactly how to fix them. And so, Another one that I would just recommend is something I did recently, which was upgrading my graphics card. So I have a, I I bought a new card and it was uh, AMD Radeon RX 590. So this is not a top of the line thing. I am not a top of the line gamer. I game, I might game a couple hours every other week. and, And so, but you know, for Christmas I was like, you know, I really like a new graphics card. So I picked up this graphics card for like $200, which is you know it's not cheap uh but it's uh what i what i really loved about it is i'm i a lot of the games i play uh when i do play games are i just like to have a little bit more realism or, you know where my my computer just has a, the environment is a little bit more engaging so some of them are racing games like uh the, the, from the dirt series and then you know things like that and so i found that just upgrading like a 200 hundred dollar graphics card I got a lot of performance out of that. And so that was just a, a nice thing. Don't have to go for like the top of the line thousand dollar build a gaming rig. You just get pretty far with that. So that's it for me. Mike, how about you?
2: Sure. So, uh, the, the other developer that I mentioned, uh, on the, the project, uh, before cars, uh, Jason Goldberger, uh, he's working with, with us on, on cars also, but he gave a talk at ElixirConf uh, about annex, uh, artificial neural network in Elixir. And machine learning, so he's been working on this project to uh, to bring machine learning to Elixir. And one of the things that kind of came up at ElixirConf was the idea of using the graphics card on your, you know, as as we were just talking about using your graphics card, because uh, <clears throat> machine learning is a lot of matrix math, and um, with Elixir being immutable, it's not really it, it's it's not strong at manipulating uh matrices because it's got to basically rebuild the entire matrix every time it changes something uh because it's immutable but uh Jason's been doing a lot of work in rust and he's built a an open cl rust binding which allows basically all that to say uh from elixir you'll be able to then tap into uh rust and then into your graphics card and use your graphics card to do that matrix math which will make machine learning uh, orders of magnitude faster than what's possible uh, right now in Elixir. So that, that's something that uh, I'm excited to see where that's, that's heading.
0: Cool, that is something I'm really excited about. Just uh, hearing about like the ability to do Elixir develop, Elixir, write Elixir code that gets compiled or transpiled or whatever it needs to be to be able to run on a, a, a GPU. And that's, that's a lot of interesting possibilities there. Well, Mike, I had a lot of fun. I know we enjoy talking about uh, companies and how they can bring Elixir into the company, how they can kind of scale up and bring developers up to speed. So thank you for sharing a lot of that information. If people are, want to follow you online or get in touch with you and ask more questions, where should they go to do that?
2: Uh, sure, yeah. So um, uh, on GitHub, uh, the First Avenger, uh, Twitter, First Avenger, um, not super active on Twitter. I do I do watch it. Um, I'm in the Elixir Slack, Slack uh, channel. Uh, same, the first Avenger. So uh, yeah, I'd be happy to talk with anyone.
0: Great. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment
1: is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN.